shall press on through Isaiah. Um, I'm going to read uh, chapter 11 um, from verses 6 through 10, and uh, then we'll pray and then we'll study. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, and their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat ox like the uh, sorry. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we uh, study your word tonight, Lord, that you will bless our time that you enable me to teach your word faithfully and accurately, Lord, and that, and that you would be glorified in the teaching of the word tonight. Amen. Okay. So, last time we were in Isaiah, uh, last few times, we've been in the first five verses of chapter 11. And the first five verses of chapter 11, and if you recall, the 11, chapters 11 and 12 are dealing with uh, Yahweh is, um, is salvation. And we see here uh, God um, working uh, towards the righteousness of his people through the messianic person. So, chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. We've seen the, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And so there is this one that from all the, the lifelessness that is there in uh, the, the Davidic family at this time, um, Jesse is mentioned because of the more humble origins and that this branch will come forth and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And we talked through all of this. And this is the Messiah. So in these first five verses, we've looked at the branch who is the Messiah. Again, more of this development that Isaiah has been doing through these early uh, chapters in telling us about this messianic person. Now when we come to verse 6 and following, having dealt with the messianic person, we're dealing with the messianic program. In other words, when the Messiah comes, what will he do? And so really, this is less about him as a person. That was the first five verses. And now we're going to see him, uh, we're going to see him uh, and what he does and what happens to the world in light of him. And bizarrely, in these first three verses of the four verses before us, we're dealing with the animal kingdom. Now, the, uh, the work of the Messiah will obviously have a huge impact on the Jewish people. We talk about that a lot. And we're going to see that in verses uh, 11 and following for the rest of the chapter when we get there. Um, his work, obviously, has a huge impact on the Gentiles as well, on the Gentile nations. And that we'll be dealing with at the end tonight in verse 10. But what we don't deal with quite so often is that outside of humanity, that the coming of the Messiah is actually going to have an impact on the entire earth, including the animal kingdom. When we go back to Genesis chapter 1, and we see that uh, God creates the heavens and the earth, and he creates the animal kingdom, he gives to the animal kingdom grass. They eat grass. That's their food. 
And so animals began vegetarian. And once the, the fall comes in, and more specifically the flood, things change. And obviously, we have carnivorous animals. But it seems, as with so many things, that there is going to be a returning to origins when things are resolved and renewed. And so in verse 6, the wolf shall dwell with a lamb. The wolf, obviously, the predator of lambs, and the one that the shepherd would be protecting the lambs from. And now the wolf is simply going to lie down with him. Similarly, the leopard lying down uh, with the young goat. And then we have the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. Now, that's aside from the general flow here, this is fascinating to me. All of these passages, all of these ones, we have parallels. So we've got wolf and lamb, we've got leopard and young goat. And then here we have. Um, and, and notice, by the way, we have uh, other parallels in verse seven: cow and bear and kid, uh, children with, with snakes. But here, we have the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. So you've got the lion lying down with the calf and not eating the calf, just as the, the, the leopard wasn't eating the goat and the wolf wasn't eating the lamb. And, but also we have a fattened calf. Now that suggests to me a few things. If we have a fattened calf, then we have, um, as we'll see in the book of Ezekiel perhaps one day, that we have some form of sacrificial system existing still. Not a sacrifice for sin, obviously, because the Messiah has paid the price for all of our sins, but the fattened calf implies that there will be not just cows and sheep just living wild and lying down with predators and there no longer being any threat, but rather that there would still be the fattening up of certain calves for the purpose of a sacrifice. So that's just a little insight there. A little child shall lead them. So not only will there not be aggression towards each other in the animal kingdom, but also they will be domesticated. A small child could say to the leopard, come on leopard, come on Mr. Wolf, and he could be in charge of these animals and direct them and lead them. A little child leading a lion. That will be a fascinating sight to see one day. Um, and so the little child will lead them. This, this obviously has huge uh, allusions back to Genesis 1. When God creates Adam and Eve, he says to them to be fruitful and multiply, and they are to have dominion over the animals. I'll just read to you. You don't need to turn there. I'm not going to spend much time there, but just very, very briefly. God says to them, uh, says to Adam, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so, it seems as if this dominion which mankind lost in the fall, this dominion that mankind was to have over the whole earth is restored when the Messiah comes. And so, as well as the Messiah bringing righteousness and justice to mankind, there is going to be this effect on the animal kingdom where the, the intent of God in Genesis 1 is going to be reestablished. Um, verse 7, the cow and the bear shall graze. Now we have, again, this isn't just repetition, we're seeing a slight shift here. Why is it that the lion will lie down with a calf and not eat it? Because the lion doesn't eat calves anymore. It doesn't eat meat anymore. And this is what it says. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. 
And so God will ena enable these animals to return to an original vegetarian diet. And thus there shall be peace amongst the animal kingdom. So much so that in verse 8, um, we have the nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's, pardon me, on the adder's den. And so we have these two snakes. Um, we used to have adders in England. No cobras, though, fortunately. But um, both poisonous snakes. And the idea is that the children can just be left to go and play with the snakes. There is no more poison. There is no more harm to come from them. And so what we have, um, really four separate things in these verses. We have peace between the animal kingdom and itself. We have a change of diet in the animal kingdom. And we have peace within the animal kingdom and humanity. And we have the return of dominion over the animal kingdom. These are the things that we see in these verses. And then this whole section is summed up in verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so there, these animals, these wild animals that are considered harmful uh, today to other animals and, and to us, they shall not hurt or destroy. He says, in all my holy mountain. Now we know that the mountain specifically is where the temple was. But also a mountain is used symbolically of a kingdom. And it may well be contextually here, um, more likely that God is speaking of the entire kingdom. That there just simply won't be any more harm or destruction or death um, in, the, in, the, in the time of the kingdom. And the reason for that is because the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. I love that analogy, that picture. Um, the idea is simply this. If you go to the sea, it's a sea because it's covered with water. If there's no water, then it's not a sea, right? So as the waters cover the sea, is almost sort of, it's saying, you know, in the same way that you have water when you have sea, in the same way when you have earth, you have the knowledge of Yahweh. Everybody knows God. There is no need for people to, to be told about Yahweh. They know Yahweh. He lives on the earth and he's worshipped in his temple and he has brought peace to the earth. Now, to see how this is developing, I want us to go, um, to go back a, a little way um, in Isaiah just to see how this fits in. If we go back to chapter 2, in the midst of the judgment in the early chapters of Isaiah, we had the uh, restoration of Israel in chapter 2. In chapter 2 and verse 2, it said, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of, of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Let us go to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of God, the, the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem, and he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. So notice in chapter 2, there we have the reference to the mountain of the Lord, 
And notice there that while we have the mountain of the Lord, we have the nations flowing to it. We're going to see that again in a moment in verse 10. We have the nations coming to worship Yahweh. And in the midst of that, the nations are not warring. There is no fighting. There are no swords. There is no war. There is peace. It has come to an end. So chapter 2 tells us that when God has his kingdom, he will bring peace. Then when we came to chapter 6, came to chapter 6, we saw the vision of Yahweh and the seraphim says to the other, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so Isaiah sees a future time. And again, remember, people often think this is is a heavenly vision. It's not. He's saying that the whole earth, they're in the temple. Where is the temple? The temple's on earth. And the whole earth is now filled with the glory of God. That that Edenic vision of, of God and man being together, of man having dominion over the animals, of there being peace, of, of, uh, of God ruling and reigning, that all of this has come to pass, and the whole earth is full of the glory of God. Then when we come to chapter uh, 9... And in chapter 7 and 8, we've seen that there is going to be um, this child who is God with us, this miracle child. And we're told more about him in chapter 9. We're told that his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. So chapter 2 has told us there's going to be a kingdom that's going to have the mountain of the Lord, and there's going to be peace on the mountain. And now, in chapter 9, we're told that specifically there is a prince of peace. There is a leader who brings peace, and he has a kingdom. This is his kingdom. And the idea in Isaiah is you put all of these pieces of the puzzle together. That there is a a ruler who who is a child, who is a man, who is born, who is also mighty God. He is the ruler, he is the prince, and he is the prince that oversees peace. Where do we know there's going to be peace? In the kingdom, in Isaiah 2, in God's kingdom. And you're going to putting these pieces together and seeing there is this one who is both man and Yahweh. This one who is a child, who grows into a leader, who is able to have this kingdom of peace and this kingdom of tranquility. And so all of these elements are coming together. And what chapter 11 is doing here is just adding to us that the animal kingdoms are also beneficiaries of the peace. They are also a piece in the puzzle of God bringing back the Edenic vision. This is something that Isaiah doesn't simply leave there. If you want to flick ahead to the end of Isaiah, it'll be so long before we're there, we might as well have a quick look now. In Isaiah 65... When he talks in Isaiah 65 about the creation of a new heavens and a new earth, he says in verse 25 of chapter 65, And the wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. That's a repetition of what we have before us here in verse 11. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. In the kingdom of God, there will be no more hurt. There will be no more destruction. And that will extend even to the animal kingdom. When we talk about Jesus being the Prince of Peace, 
we really mean in, in every regard he is going to be the Prince of Peace. And so there will be this time. And I think, you know, sometimes we, it's a shame we don't teach our Old Testament more and we don't see these things and we don't teach these things. Because then what happens is the, the Jehovah's Witnesses come along with their little, their little uh, booklets and their newsletters and what have you. And they have these pictures of, you know, very Anglicanized and Western and white-skinned Jesus with his kind of people around him. But they have, they have these scenes of the kingdom and lion lying down with the lamb. And people are like, oh, I'm not sure about that. And they just turn to the Bible and say, well, see? And because the church doesn't reference this, spiritualizes it away, we kind of give them an open door, really, because they can quite clearly and easily show in Scripture, God said this is going to happen. It's going to happen. Where, which churches are talking about this? And, you know, it is, it is something that is clearly here in the scripture, that there will be this re-establishing of things as they were in the beginning. And so, um, a couple of other passages I just want to show you that link all of these things together, um, specifically linking um, some of the earlier chapters of Isaiah with the things here. Um, if you turn to Hosea, Hosea is a little bit further back in the... Uh, in the Old Testament, you'll find him at the beginning of the Minor Prophets. And again, uh, Hosea, like, like all these Old Testament prophets, is talking about the day of the Lord and the judgment that will come on that day and the res restoration that will come on that day. And he says in that day, verse 16 of chapter 2, declares Yahweh, you will, know, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword and war from the land and I will make you lie down in safety." And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, in steadfast love, and in mercy. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know Yahweh. Do you see all the connections there? Again, we have the animal kingdom at peace. There will be a covenant that, that is made with the beasts and the birds, and that is in the context of peace. There'll be no more bow, no more sword, there'll be no more war. So there'll be no more violence between man and animal. There'll be no more violence between um, man and man. And God will bring this peace and this righteousness and this justice to the earth. And that last verse in verse 20, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And so we have here in Hosea the linking of the, the peace of Isaiah 2 with the animals of Isaiah 11 with more clarity, the referencing of a covenant. And it's also linked with the knowledge of the Lord, which of course in Isaiah 11 covers the earth. Another passage like this that I think is worth looking at while we're in the Minor Prophets is if you go a little bit further on in the Minor Prophets to Habakkuk. Habakkuk's more towards the end of the Minor Prophets just before Zephaniah, after Nahum. Um, in Habakkuk, Habakkuk in chapter 2 is bringing judgments. There's these woe judgments. We've, we've seen woe judgments in uh, Isaiah already in chapter um, 5, I believe it was. 
And he's going through his woe judgments in verse 12. He says, Woe to him who builds the town with blood and founds the city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from Yahweh of hosts that people merely labor for fire and nations weary for themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You see what he's done? The knowledge of the glory of God. He's conflated the knowledge of God covering the earth in chapter 11 with the glory of God covering the earth in chapter 6. He's drawing those two threads together, showing that, he's, that they are essentially referencing, or he understands them as referencing the same thing. I think the interesting thing in the, in the context of Habakkuk is he's saying you don't want to be trying to accomplish things through warfare because ultimately the whole earth is going to be the Lord's and his glory will cover the earth and everyone will know the Lord and what you're, what you're fighting for is not only against his ways but it's pointless. And it's in that context that he tells us that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will be filling the earth as the waters cover the sea. It's nice to see, I think, these passages and, uh, and see where they are. So that, uh, that is really the whole context of uh, Isaiah uh, 11, verses 6 through 9. That when Jesus comes, the messianic figure, the branch of the first five verses, when he comes, he is a shoot. He's going to bring new life. That new life is going to be seen to such an extent that it's even going to impact on the animal kingdom and there will be peace with the animal kingdom, peace amongst the animal kingdom, peace between humanity and the animal kingdom because there will be peace over all the earth, as he's already said, and the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord, of the glory of the Lord, and there will be nowhere that is outside of that. Then in verse 10, we go from the animal kingdom to the Gentiles. And I guess in the Jewish frame of reckoning, we're going from the sort of the, the base to the more, the more advanced. We're going from animals to Jews, and there in the middle is Gentiles. And that's, that's pretty much where the Jews often would put them. And uh, I'll put us, I mean, that's myself included, I guess. Um, so in verse 10, we're told, in that day... And so again, this phrase just keeps being used by Isaiah. That day, that day. What day is that? That's the day we were told in the early chapters is the day of Yahweh. It's the day when Yahweh comes and he judges, he brings judgment, and he makes all things right through that judgment. And in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be Glorious. Okay. Now there's a, lot of, there's a lot of things here, so we should go through these and bit by bit. First of all here, in that day, there is the one who's referred to as the root of Jesse. Now, this is different from chapter 11 and verse 1. In chapter 11 and verse 1, there is a shoot. A shoot that comes from the stump of Jesse. So in chapter 11 and verse 1, the Messiah is coming from Jesse. In chapter 11 and verse 10, he is the root of Jesse. He is the one from whom Jesse comes. And so we have the Messiah completing this circle of the Davidic line, in that Jesus creates the Davidic line. Jesus is the one who gives life to the Davidic line. Jesus is the one who chooses the Davidic line. And Jesus is the one who then in his humanity comes forth from the Davidic line. 
And so by referring to him as a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and referring to him then as the, the root of Jesse, um, is, is astonishing. Particularly when in chapter 11, verse 1, we're told it's a branch from his roots. That's Jesse's roots. So the branch is going to come from the roots, and he is the root. He's the one that Jesse originates from in the beginning. And so Jesus is the one who brings about humanity, that brings about the origins of the humanity of the Messiah. And um, it's just that it, it, when you see that phrase in its context in Isaiah 11, it's just as an astonishing statement of who he is. He comes from Jesse, and yet Jesse comes from him. And so we are going now from uh, him coming up and coming forth and being glorified to now we're seeing the glory. The root of Jesse, I think, rather than the shoot from Jesse, is a statement of his glory. And that fits well in the context. He is the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. He's a signal for the peoples. The word signal in many versions here will say an ensign or a sign. It was basically a, uh, a high pole. It was a pole where banners would wave from that was put on a high hill. And it was used essentially as a, an assembly point. So you think about it, you have a hill that everyone can see, and you have a, a post put up, and you have flags or banners on that post, and everybody can see that. In the end of Jeremiah, it was used simply for communicating, but normally it's used for gathering. It's used for gathering. Um, it's used for gathering fugitives in Jeremiah chapter 4, and it's used for gathering troops, as we're going to see in chapter 13. The phrase is going to be used again. And here in Isaiah 11, it's used for gathering the peoples or the nations. The idea is that Jesus is uh, he's the root, and he stands as a signal. So it's as if, in the way that they would have this pole, they'd have this banner, and the troops would say, aha, that's where we're to go and we're to gather. That Jesus is the sign. That he is the signal. And that the people, the nations, see Jesus, and they come to him like an army would come to gather at the single point. And this is the picture that really was painted in chapter 2 that I read to you already. That in chapter 2, there is the holy mountain, the highest of hills, and there on the highest of hills, there is the temple, and there is the Messiah. And what, what happens in chapter 2? The nations come to the Lord. They come to the Lord. The Lord ministers to them. I, you don't need to turn back there again. I just want to read just a, again a couple of things. In chapter 2, we have the, the mountain of the house of the Lord. The temple, the house on the mountain. Lifted above the other hills. All the nations, that's the Gentiles, are going to flow to it. Many people should come and they'll say, let us go to the mountain of Yahweh. Let us go that he may teach us his ways. So they're going to Yahweh's mountain, Yahweh's house to learn. For out of Zion shall go the law. And he's going to judge between these Gentile nations. He's going to settle disputes so there will be no need for war. So who are they coming to in the temple? Who are they coming to? They're coming to Yahweh, and he's going to settle their disputes. Who's going to do it? It's going to be Yahweh the Messiah. That's what's being, uh, being said here, that the Messiah, the root, is going to be the one who is going to be the one that they are going to gather to. 
and the nations will come to inquire. They will come to learn. They will come to hear that law in chapter 2. They will come to, um, to have their disputes settled here in chapter 2. And uh, we will have this whole concept uh, mentioned again when we come back to Isaiah uh, next time. Because if you look ahead a little bit to verse 12, he will raise a signal for the nations. So this theme is going to continue, uh, this, this analogy is going to continue into chapter uh, into verse 12. So we'll come back to it there as well. But Jesus is going to be this ensign. And so the nations are going to come. This, you have to understand this in the context of the, the Jews of the time of Jesus. That they had the, the Gentiles separated. There was the court of the Gentiles, which was as close, the outer part of the temple. It was as close as Gentiles were allowed to get to the presence of God. And in Jesus' day, what were they using it for? A marketplace. A marketplace. And that's why Jesus was furious. That's why he turned over the tables. That's why he cleared the temple. Why? He is the signal for the Gentiles to come to him. And where would the Gentiles come to God in that day, at that time? They would come to the temple, to the court of the Gentiles, and they're just using it as a marketplace. There's cow dung, and there's, there's birds, and there's feathers, and there's coins being changed. And, and they're basically using it as a place to make a profit because they did not care for the Gentile people. And God's heart, Jesus' heart for the Gentiles is seen in the clearing of the temple. And in, way back in Genesis chapter 49, and again, I'm just going to read it so you don't need to turn there. I don't want to spend long there. But in Genesis 49 and the prophecies, it talks about the descendants of Judah. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, as a lioness, who dares rouse him? Isn't it interesting that Judah is described as a lion, one who is mighty and fierce, and yet he's going to, in the context of Isaiah 11, what's happening? The lion is lying down with the lamb. And then it says, the scepter, the scepter being the, the ruling staff of the monarch, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's star from between his feet until tribute comes to him. Now, or in verse, some version saying, until Shiloh comes, until whom it belongs, is what that means. And the idea is simply this, that, that ultimately the Messiah is going to come from Judah. It's going to come from the tribe of Judah, as we've seen. But the line that's so important here is it says, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So there will eventually come from Judah a ruler whose rule will never end, and the nations will come and be obedient to him. You see, right from the beginning... When God calls Abraham, he says he's going to be a blessing, not just to, I'm going to make a nation of you, but you're going to be a blessing to, to all nations. That Abraham was the beginning of the Jewish people so that God could use the Jewish people to take his message, to take the light to all nations. And the Messiah is the one who's going to have the obedience of the nations. And here we're seeing in chapter 2 of Isaiah, the nation is coming to the mountain. 
to learn the Lord, to worship God. And here in chapter 11 and verse 10, we see again the nations coming. He is a signal for the nations to come. If you have... If you have an understanding of the Old Testament, you have to have an understanding of God's love for the, the, the Gentile people, the non-Jewish people. And yet somehow the pride of the Jews led to their blindness and they saw Yahweh as being for them at the expense of the other people. They wanted to be mighty. They wanted to conquer. They wanted to be in charge. They wanted to have dominion over the other nations. Their job was to be a light to the nations. But God will ultimately complete that purpose through the, 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 the most faithful of Jews, the one obedient Jew who is going to still be a light to the nations and is going to be the signal for them to come and gather around. And then it says, finally, his resting place shall be glorious. He is going to have done his work, accomplish what he needs to accomplish, and we're going to see as we go through Isaiah how much he is going to accomplish, what he has to do for the Lord. We're going to see the suffering servant passage. We're going to see all that is done. But this time, at the end, on the day of the Lord, after judgment, he'll be his time of rest, and the world will will be covered by the glory of God. There will be this glory here. And again, notice how the knowledge of the Lord covers the sea, and here the resting place is glory, is glorious. And that is where we have that connection in Habakkuk, where he links knowledge and glory together. The whole world will know the Lord, they'll come and worship the Lord, the light will have gone to the Gentiles, and Messiah shall be in his resting place at that time. That will be the, uh, the rest that the Sabbath spoke of. So that's everything there in those verses. The one last thing I want to do, and we're not going to be too much longer um, tonight, it'll be a shorter one tonight, but the one thing I do want to do is I want us to see how this verse is used by Paul in the book of Romans. So this verse is quoted directly by Paul in Romans. So let's turn to Romans chapter 15. I say it'll be shorter, but I could get carried away with Romans here, but we'll see. Romans. So if you're in Romans 15 now, in the book of Romans, while you hold your finger in chapter 15, let's just look at the beginning of the book of Romans. The beginning of the book of Romans. Um, in the beginning of the book of Romans, it deals, it's dealing really with the Jewish Gentile issue. If you look at Romans 1 and verse 16, we have the, uh, and 17, we have the purpose of the book of Romans. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And you will see verse 16 quoted by so many. It's such a wonderful verse. You know, and they'll say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation, for salvation, to everyone who believes. And invariably, people then stop quoting the verse. They chop it off mid-verse. Because it doesn't sound so good when you say, well, to the Jew first. 
and also to the Greek. Some people will suggest that the gospel is not to the Jew first, that it was initially, historically, the gospel went out to Jewish people first, and now the gospel's gone to the Gentiles, and so that whole Jew first thing is done. The problem is, is that here in Romans 1, there's only one verb. The verb to be. It is. The gospel is. What is the gospel? It's the power unto salvation. And it is to the Jew first. If it's no longer to the Jew first, then it's no longer the power of salvation. The, the two are governed by one verb. And so the gospel is still to the Jew first. So the book begins by dealing with that whole issue. As we go through the book of Romans, he deals with this gospel, and he deals with why it's for the Jew first, and why it's also for the Greek. He deals with the distinctions of the gospel to the Jew and to the Greek. And so, when he deals with condemnation, he talks about different degrees of condemnation. If you are a Jew and you reject the gospel, the condemnation is far greater than for anyone else. Why? Because there's far more light that's been revealed. It's your Messiah, your covenants, your Bible. It's, it's, it's a Jewish faith that is being rejected. And then when we come to justification... We have this wonderful statement uh, as he deals in that section where he says that, uh, well, let me read the verse. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace. All are justified by his grace. And he goes on to say, I'm trying to find the exact verse here. Hold on a second. Um, he says in chapter 3 and verse 9, he says, Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. We've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. So we have that judgment of the Jews. Then, in, as I read to you in verse 22, we have the righteousness of God being, being uh, for all who believe and there being no distinction anymore. And then he goes on to say, uh, at the end of the chapter, for we hold that what no one is justified, this is verse 28 of Romans 3, no one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. And so he says that basically by faith he's going to save Jew and Gentile. So when it comes to condemnation, there is a distinction between the Jew and the Gentile. The Jews are condemned more greatly. When it comes to justification, there's no distinction. They're both saved by faith. They're both saved by faith. And so, um, when he goes through chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, he's dealing with justification, sanctification, glorification. And is there any mention of the Jewish-Gentile issue? None at all. Why? Because they're justified the same way, they're sanctified the same way, and they're glorified the same way. But they are, there is a distinction in, um, in their condemnation, and there is a distinction 
<clears throat> in how God deals with the Jews and the Gentiles today. Not in justification, not in sanctification, but in the dealing with them as people. And that's what Romans 9, 10, and 11 talks about and it explains. And it really is not just an aside like it was traditionally t- treated as, um, but it is the center of the book of Romans. Now, I tell you all of this so that you see when you come to the end of the book of Romans in chapter 15, he says this, and I'm going to read to you in chapter 15 now and from verse 8. Verse 8. He says, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promise given to the patriarchs in order that Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Do you see that? That God sends Christ, Christ becomes the servant. Where is Christ referred to predominantly as a servant? That's Isaiah. He's pointing to Isaiah. We haven't got there yet. That's the latter part of the book. He's pointing to Isaiah. And he's saying that Christ becomes a servant to the circumcised. And that's just fascinating that Isaiah talks about the righteous servant who's suffering for his people. And here, Paul takes that concept of the Messiah of the servant suffering on the behalf of his people. And he essentially says here that he's a servant to the, the, the circumcised, the Jews, to show God's truthfulness, that's the faithfulness to them, and to confirm the promises, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God. In other words, God had to do what he said he'd do to the Jews. He suffered Jesus as a servant for the Jews. But he also did it so that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And in context, I think the mercy here is the mercy to the Jewish people. When the Gentiles say, look, God kept his promises to the Jews. What a wonderful God he is. That's the whole point of Romans 9, 10, and 11. That's why it's coming at the end of the book of Romans. And that God is going to, uh, that the Gentiles will glorify him. And then it is written, and then we have a quote from the Old Testament. If you read here in verse uh, 9, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing uh, to your name. That's a quotation from uh, Second Samuel. And again, it was understood right way back, and it's, again, it's uh, linked to in Psalm uh, 18, I think it is, that, that here in this we have uh, an understanding that the praising of God amongst Gentiles Notice in that, I'm really tempted to turn to 2 Samuel, but I probably shouldn't. But I just want you to notice this, that he's talking about, I am going to praise you. A Jew is praising God, and the Gentiles are witnessing it. I'm going to praise you among the Gentiles. So it is God's dealing with the Jews that is drawing the Gentiles. Do we see that? That's what's being referenced there. And again it is said, O rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol you. And so the first of those quotes is from Deuteronomy 32. The second of those quotes is from Psalm 117. You know if we were doing Romans, we'd be looking at them all in all sorts of detail, but we're not, and I'm just going to skim through. But I want you to understand when he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Again, you have the Jewish people, who are rejoicing God, and the Gentiles come in and rejoice with him. Yes? All right. 
Then in verse 11, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And we're just there talking about Gentile people worshipping God. But these, these passages are linking the Gentile worship of God to the Jewish worship of God. That the Jews worshipping God were supposed to bring the Gentiles in. Did they ever do that? No. And that's why Paul in Romans 9, 10, 11 talks about the Jews being blinded. And that now the Gentiles are coming in. But ultimately, at the end, they will do what they're supposed to do. And that's why in verse 12, he quotes from Isaiah 11. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. And we have a reference there to Isaiah 11 and verse 10. A diff, slightly different translation there to, to comes from the Septuagint, but we'll, we'll deal with that uh, maybe if we ever do Romans. Uh, but the point that Paul is making is simply this, that it's Jesus' coming that will fulfill what the Jews were supposed to do. The Jews will accomplish their mission, but they'll do it through the person of Jesus Christ. That Jesus will, that they will mourn for him, that they will cry out for him, they will mourn for him as you mourn, they will mourn for him they have pierced, like they mourn for their own child. And Jesus will return, and he will come and rescue them, and they, all Israel will be saved, and then Jesus will be there as a, a, a signal, uh, an ensign for the nations to come and to worship. And then Paul wraps up that section by saying, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I, I think that's just not a, a throwaway line at the end. He's saying God is a God of hope and you should, he will fill you with joy and peace in believing. When you believe that God is going to be faithful to the Jewish nation, complete their purposes, and the Gentiles are going to come in, and that God always had a plan for the Gentiles, he says, he says, then by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will abound in hope. When you have peace in believing, there will be a hope that will come. And that's the whole point of the book of Romans. You can trust God when he says he will never leave you or forsake you. You can trust God when he says that nothing will separate you from the love of Christ because God is going to be faithful to all of his promises, including the promises to the Jews, and ultimately that will bring the Gentile nations to come and worship him as well. God ties all of these things together. And this is why I am holding off from my itch to teach the book of Romans until we finished Isaiah. Because you can't really understand the full weight of Romans until you understand Isaiah. Paul is, is, is building on what Isaiah has said when he talks about this Gentile salvation to come. And as he goes on in that last section, and we won't spend time there, but as he goes on in chapter 15 and verses 14 and on, he talks about being a minister uh, uh, to the Gentiles of the gospel of God, and we have a, a, a repetition of the, the power of God and ham his ambition to preach the gospel, and we're kind of closing up where we've begun. We're closing up with the gospel for the Jew and also for the Gentile here at the end of the book as well. And so, the gospel is for today... Now, as the gospel goes out, it's to the Jew and to the Gentile. And that was something 
that was always prophesied. And ultimately it will be fulfilled by Jesus being here physically on the earth and him being the one to whom all the Gentile nations come. But because that is who Christ is, that's what's happening today. We who are Gentiles have come to the Jewish Messiah because he stands as one on a hill calling people to him. And we have heeded the call and we have come. And one day that that analogy of what has happened to us will be played out in full to the whole world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for, for the fact that your gospel was always to be for the Gentiles as well. We thank you that though you chose Israel to be your chosen nation, that your desire was for your light, your glory, your gospel to go out to the whole world. Lord, we rejoice that one day the work will be done. And Lord, we look forward to seeing it. And we we are grateful, we're so grateful, Lord, that, that even now, this day, that we are beneficiaries of that heart. That we as Gentiles have been drawn by the light of your Son to come and follow him. And may we serve him faithfully, we pray. Amen.